Guys, mental health is something that Dan and I are extremely passionate about, which is why it excites us to say that we are partnering with BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode and our podcast. BetterHelp is the world's leading therapy service, and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professional and quality you expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash BacksideGroundBalls. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BacksideGroundBalls. by Riverside. Welcome back to the Backside Ground Balls podcast. Super excited to be back here on the pod. My name is Trevor Powers, and sadly, I'm not joined by Dan tonight, but we do have producer Phoebe, so we're happy to have her back. But we also have a very special guest today. We have Peter Flaherty, who is a national writer slash analyst with Baseball America, and he specializes in covering college baseball and the MLB draft. He's a co-host of Baseball America's College Baseball Podcast, and he formerly interned on the Cape with the Katuit Kevlers as a GM intern and Major League Baseball Scout liaison. So, Peter, super excited to have you today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm fired up to be on. Yeah, no, I mean, huge fans, obviously. Uh, love the content. Ton of Twitter content as well. So, for any of our listeners that are looking for some draft stuff, we'll make sure we give you an opportunity to plug that. Um, but obviously, focal focal point of the conversation right now is conference tournament play. Right, we're rounding into form this week. ACC tournament is happening right in my neck of the woods in Durham. You got the SEC tournament at Hoover, and obviously the other ones across the country. So are there any initial thoughts that you have, wherever you want to take it, um, that you're looking forward to and excited to watch with, with conference tournament play this weekend? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's a super exciting time. You've got the conference tournaments going on across the country, both at the Power 5 level and then down through the mid-major level. And I think we've got a pretty established group of of eight or nine teams that are going to be in contention for those top eight national seeds. But I'm really excited to see how, you know, seeds nine through 16, 10 through 16, sort them out in these conference tournaments. Because there are a lot of teams with viable cases to host, really good resumes. And the next two or three games for them are going to be kind of make or break in terms of hosting. And then on the flip side, you've always got the teams fighting just to get into the tournament in general and and stolen bids. And there's always so much to watch. And 
and I know that this week will provide a lot of fireworks as usual. Definitely, definitely. And I think one of my biggest disappointments about conference tournament play at the division one level it isn't kind of it doesn't matter as much i guess from like the national standpoint of like sure those small conferences those ones that battle out and those automatic qualifiers matter a lot more but when you talk about like the wake force of the world the virginias the lsus and all those things it's kind of just stay healthy get right and, and make sure you're ready to roll come regional play but a couple times there you mentioned hosting and the importance of hosting and obviously self selfishly as a guy that lives in in uh, the Raleigh area we're hoping for as many regionals as we can get so we can get boots on the ground what are kind of some of the storylines that you're looking forward to with this weekend that could lay the foundation whether it be for you said kind of those top eight national seeds or even that nine to 16 range where we could see some teams crap crop up yeah so for the ACC is kind of there's a lot to be sorted out, I think, for hosting. Um, Boston College, Duke, and Miami, they're all teams right now that are on pretty, I think, similar standing. BC has the RPI advantage at 14. Duke's a little further back at 19, but they have the series win over Boston College. And then Miami is right there, too, at 18, and Miami's got the series win over Duke. So it's like it's kind of this endless circle in terms of the transitive property. Um, and I think that honestly, the next couple of days in Durham are going to be the difference makers and, and, and seeing which of the three teams host, if there are two of the three teams that host, um, seeing how that all plays out. I know on, you know, tomorrow at 11 AM, maybe even by the time this is released, uh, BC plays Virginia tech. And I feel like if they can win that game, that they're probably safe, it's going to be tough to to have a team win 17 ACC games and not be a host. Um, And then you've got um, Miami in their first game, they play NC state, which is a team fighting for their tournament life. Uh, And NC state got a tough draw. I'll say, because they're on the bubble, they're coming off a sweep of pit um, and they get Duke and Miami in their pool. So it's, it's going to be tough for the Wolfpack. Um, They're playing good baseball though. And, uh, I think for them, they probably got to get to the semifinals to feel uh, to feel totally safe about a tournament berth. Um, and and for BC, if they can just win one game in pool play, I feel like they can get a hosting spot. And now with Duke and Miami, it's going to be very uh, very fascinating because they play each other on Friday. I think it is so that again could also kind of be a de facto playing game for hosting. Um, and then kind of switching over to the SEC, South Carolina has. They've been riddled with injuries. If you had talked to any South Carolina fan, I think at the start of the year and said, heading into Hoover, you'll be right on the cusp. If not one of the last hosts right now, I think they'd probably take that, but they definitely aren't happy with kind of the way the last month plus has gone, getting the 930 game tomorrow against a Georgia team that's playing well and gets Jaden Woods on the mound. Um, And I think similar to BC and the ACC, if they can just get, one win in Hoover or somehow get two, they can probably still eke their way back into a hosting spot and then shifting gears to the big 12 a little bit. It's been one of the tougher conferences to figure out all year, at least on my end, it's kind of, you get eight really solid teams. Three have separated themselves from the rest with Texas, Oklahoma state and West Virginia. I don't know what's going to happen. And as far as hosting goes with them, because West Virginia was a top eight national seed as of, 
a week ago and then they get swept by Texas and it kind of causes chaos where you get a three-way split of the big of the Big 12 regular season title. So that's going to have to sort itself out. I don't envy the committee at all. Um, but yeah, those are kind of the three main things I'm focused on. And then as the week progresses, you inevitably get these Cinderella teams that that advance a little bit, that play themselves into a tournament berth or play themselves into a hosting spot. So um, that'll that'll be really exciting to follow as always. And we may end up with two Alabama hosts with Auburn and Alabama because they're they're playing their best baseball at the right time. Auburn and Alabama are both streaking. Bama's got an RPI of 12, 16 SEC wins, 16 quad one wins. Auburn has has won its last, I think, four SEC series, including a win up at Founders Park and a series win over LSU. So um, just a, a, a ton of fun stuff to follow everywhere you look. So anybody who's followed college baseball at any capacity over the last couple of years should not be surprised that a Butch Thompson led Auburn teams playing their best baseball coming into the playoffs because that is a guy who has a knack for getting his teams rolling going into the postseason. I mean, they parlayed that all the way basically to Omaha last season and, and pretty impressive to see him consistently do that, it seems like, which is kind of cool to see. But I kind of want to circle all the way back to uh, the Big 12 and and just looking at how they've kind of just eaten themselves, it almost seems like. Obviously, you have the talent of Oklahoma State that is probably, and majority of times, obviously, comes through with their lineup, and obviously that that ballpark can play small. But Texas seems to be little streaky highs and lows, but they seem to be playing some really good baseball. And then the forgotten teams, the the West Virginia Mountaineers. So, you know, what do each of those teams kind of possess that, you know, could lead them to not only having success in the big 12 tournament tournament itself, but beyond and, and maybe make a run towards Omaha. So Oklahoma state's got the offense. I think they have the most high powered offense of the trio. Um, part of that's a, somewhat of a byproduct of playing at O'Brate stadium where the ball really flies, but this they're high powered top to bottom and are going to hit no matter where they play kind of starting with that dynamic duo of rock Riggio and, and Nolan Schubart They're they're two studs and, and rock sitting three fifty four with 17 home runs. Schubart three forty eight with 15 home runs. He's, he's been one of the best freshmen in the country Schubart and, there's not a weak spot one through nine in that lineup. And they're like 10 or 11 deep with Colin Brugman coming off the bench and, and Zach Earhart finally getting rolling again. And, and they can swing it with anyone in the country. There's no doubt about it. The question for them is just going to be pitching because outside of Jerron Watts Brown and that first weekend starter role and Isaac Stevens, the, the sidewinder and the back end of the bullpen, it's a little thin and it's been, troubling at times for him to to kind of see where everyone kind of factors in per se but um the bullpen threw really well this past weekend which was very encouraging if there's any point in the season where you want uh, a unit of your team to be hitting its stride I think it's right now so uh what they lack in pitching they make up a little bit in offense and shifting gears a little bit to West Virginia they might be the the most well-rounded I would say of the three Uh, they've had an historic season. They did fall off a little bit with that sweep against Texas, but I'm not going to ding them too much for it because they've been excellent all year. JJ Weatherholt for my money's worth is the best hitter and position player in the 2024 draft class. He's hitting 447 
uh, 38 extra base hits. He's got 35 bags. He doesn't swing a miss at all. It's a miss rate, I think, of 11% or or something like that, and that shrinks even more once you get in the strike zone. So you're talking about a great approach with elite bat-to-ball skills, and that's a combination that bodes very well. And then up and down their lineup, it's a balance of power and speed. Grant Hussey has some of the biggest raw power in the Big 12. Landon Wallace is a little bit of a power speed combo. He's got 17 bags, 10 home runs, and then veteran Tevin Tucker has been great. And then on the mound, you get a, I think you get an interesting one, two punch with Blaine Traxel and Ben Hampton, because you've got Traxel from that lower slot. He's more of a, uh, I think a ground ball guy. Um, and then you get left-hander Ben Hampton, who, again, he doesn't have super premium velocity, but again, you're going from a, a side winding righty to a, to a, to a soft tossing lefty. And then out of the back end of the bullpen, you get Carlson Reed, who I think is the, at least from a stuff standpoint, he's the best reliever in the country. He's up to 98 with a wipeout slider. So they're great. And then you can't forget about Texas. Um, They've been playing really, really well lately under David Pierce. They've dealt with some injuries this year. They're getting Tanner Whip back at the best time. Um, and in kind of what's been the theme for Texas, uh, I, I think re- at least a, somewhat recently, um, they're a pretty veteran clad group, uh, redshirt junior Peyton Powell's leading them in hitting, uh, junior Dylan Campbell's right there. And then you've got transfers, Garrett Gilmet and Porter Brown also hitting well. It's a super deep lineup. They're all hitting really well. There are no easy outs in that order. And then on the mound, a guy to watch, their best arm overall, I think, is LeBaron Johnson Jr., the redshirt sophomore at Jacksonville. 281 ERA, 84 Ks and I think, 65 innings. Um, he's been really, really good for him. And then their bullpen's been solid. So it's kind of each team has their own strengths. And, and like you said, they've just been beaten up on each other all year long and the same is going to hold true in Arlington this week because whoever emerges from this fracas, I think is one for sure going to host depending on who comes out of it. There's going to be a case for a top eight national seed. I think, especially if West Virginia is able to storm through the bracket, maybe even Texas um, really all three. I think that for a top eight national seed, though, West Virginia, but um, I, I think when all said and done, two of these three teams are going to host and potentially three at three. No, that's awesome. And that, that's that's awesome. And, and what you said about each of those teams individually actually kind of perfectly segued me into what my next question was going to be. And you look at what it takes to reach Omaha, right? Baseball is such a different sport, right? We live in a we live in a society where it's all about the rings, right? The Michael Jordans, the Tom Brady's, the LeBron James have ruined just the parody in what it takes to be a good team, good sports, all those things. It's all about that championship, right? So taking out the equation that there is something very impressive about having a good long stretch of a regular season, but not parlaying that into Omaha, when you look across the country and you look at like recent trends, what are some of the things, at least strengths wise for a team that give you the best margin for error of getting to Omaha, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think you want as well-rounded a team as you can get, a team that's going to pitch it and be able to swing it. Like I think that you want a, a club that's not afraid to get into a pitcher's duel, but is also equipped with the bats to get into a slugfest. And right now there are two that 
actually, you know what? There are three that stick out to me more than the rest, and it's Wake Forest, Florida, and actually Clemson. Um, four, Vanderbilt, too. Uh, Wake Forest has – they came into the season with a ton of hype. Um, they This has been their best year on paper, at least, with Tom Walter, and they've lived up to every bit of it with – their three-headed monster in the rotation with Rhett Lauder, Josh Hartle, and Sean Sullivan. And then in the lineup, similarly, you've got Brock Wilkin, Nick Kurtz, Tommy Hawk up at the top, Justin Johnson. You can really name everyone in the lineup and everyone on that pitching staff, and they're going to give you a quality at bat or give you a, a string together some quality innings on the mound. So in trying to poke some holes in this team and in thinking, well, if they don't get to Omaha, this will be the reason why, or – if they get bounced early, this will be the reason why. I really, I can't do it with Wake. Um, and they're the favorite to be the number one overall seed, um, which means that they'll be at home and have a regional at home and a super regional at home all the way to Omaha, where they're 29-3, and three, but they can also play on the road. They're 16-6 and six in true road games. Like, I mean, they're this is as well-rounded a team as I've seen in college baseball, at least recently. Um, and I feel really good about the Deeks getting to Omaha. Once you get to Omaha, all bets are off in a sense. But again, if you're going to kind of get into these, I guess, battles and have to play three game, play deep into Omaha and grind it out a little bit, they have the the stamina on the mound to to be able to withstand that. And then Florida, similarly, they have one of the best lineups in the country. Um, they can hit with anybody, probably can out hit anybody. Uh, it starts with Jack Caglione up at the top, leads the country with 28 jacks, hitting 350. Um, and then you've got projected top five overall pick, Wyatt Langford, who he missed a little bit of time, but he still hit 400 with 16 doubles. And Josh Rivera hitting 360, having a career year at the dish. And then that rotation on the weekends with Caglione, Waldrop, and Sprout, that from a stuff standpoint, that's that's pretty difficult to beat. Um, I know that Wake probably has them a little bit in the polish department, um, but from a sheer stuff standpoint, Waldrop might have the best in the country. There's an argument to me. He's got four plus pitches with his fastball, that hellacious split change, and then two distinct breaking balls with the curveball and the slider. So he's been great. Sprout, similar. Splitter's a plus pitch. Fastball explodes out of his hand. I think he might be a reliever long-term, but that doesn't matter when you're talking about college guys and in Omaha aspirations. And then you've got Caglione who, in addition to banging at the plate, he's hitting air. He's, he's been up to 99 from the left side, developing a slider and, and a cutter. And, and he's looked really good in his last few starts and he had a shaky April, but uh, there was no better time for him to figure it out than now. And then flipping back to the ACC with Clemson, uh, I think that they're playing the best baseball of anyone in the country right now. It's hard to say that they're not. Uh, they've won their last 10 ACC games. Um, they've won, I think, their last seven ACC series. Um, they've got some marquee wins there. Uh, Caden Grice has really, really come on for him on both sides of the baseball. Uh, I know Caglione gets a lot of the love with the two-way discussions, but and I, and I think that causes for a guy like Grice to get overlooked. You know, he's got a 3-1 ERA with 82 Ks and 60 innings. And then at the dish, he's hitting right around 300 with 14 jacks. He's 
he's cut down a little bit on the strikeouts, still, um, still a little high, but they've got the ACC freshman of the year, Cam Canarella, who's hitting a tick under 400, maybe right at 400 still. And then, uh, Clemson wide receiver and center fielder on the baseball team. Will Taylor is hitting 350 and, and Billy Amick swinging a really hot bat right now. Uh, so I think they would, them and Wake would probably rank last in terms of the teams I'd want to run into right now, uh, yeah. just with how well they're playing and the personnel they've got. And then Vanderbilt, again, really top to bottom, and it's a coach Corbin club. So, you know, they're going to be polished. They're going to play really well. And they're going to play their best when the lights are brightest. So um, there's a there's a lot to love about each of those four teams. I They, right now, I think one of those four probably emerges. But, again, you've got Arkansas, who, even with all the injuries they've dealt with, they just win. They just figure out a way to get it done, and I think there's something to be said for that. And they don't care what's thrown their way. They just figure it out and find a way to come out on top. So that's going to play really well in Omaha or in the tournament in a tournament type setting and looking to get to Omaha Stanford. Again, they know how to get to Omaha. They just, that championships eluded them. So I I feel pretty confident with them getting back there. And then LSU, it's kind of outside of Paul Skeens. There's a little bit of figuring out to do on the mound, but I think that that quartet of wake Florida, Vandy and Clemson, those, those four have kind of separated themselves in in my eyes. Yeah, and it, it's funny you you mentioned Florida, and when you talk about the polish part in comparison to a team like Wake, where obviously that pitching staff specifically has been just absurd production wise. Every time I watch a Florida pitcher throw, it's just like just catch them on the right day, and hopefully that's in June, and there's nobody that could beat these guys, right? If they go one, two, three with those three arms that they have and just the talent that they possess, that could outperform a Wake Forest even in a three-game series just because those guys are that talented. They're, they're draft names for a reason. They're going to make themselves a lot of money for a reason, and this stuff is just high octane. And that's kind of brings me to, to my next question. I do want to circle back on Clemson in, in, in a second after this, but how important is the talent part, right? Baseball, there is a little bit more parity. There's the defensive aspect. There's so many things like that could go wrong and could come into play, but I always hang my hat on it. The more talented team, that's who you want. That's who you're hanging, you're putting your bets on. That's who you're putting your trust in. How important to you is when you're evaluating these teams, talent alone, and that allows you to, whether it be an LSU who might not be playing their best baseball or a Florida who the back of the baseball card might not say what the talent says, or even a wake where it's kind of the combination of both, where there's tons of talent, but the production's there as well. Yeah, I think that, if you ask any coach in America, they'll probably say it. I mean, you're a coach yourself, so this is probably what you're telling your guys. But um, it's one thing to be talented on paper, but you got to go out and win the game. Like, there's a reason why you play the games. Mm-hmm. Like, you got to go out and win them. So talent can only get you so far. Um, I'm sure that the Floridas, Wake Forests, and and Vanderbilts of the world, and LSU's of the world, love having this much talent. But I guarantee you that Coach O'Sullivan, Coach Johnson, Coach Walter um, – and, and coach Corbin are in the locker room saying, Hey, we can't get by on town alone. Like yep. we've got a target on our back. We're the best for a reason. Um, we got to go out and play. So I think it comes from the culture that they've created in the clubhouse. Um, I think you can see with how teams play and, and just how they get up for each other, the chemistry that they've got in there. And, 
and guys that want to win and and go far because you kind of think it's um it's second nature for these guys to want to compete until the very end but um you'd be surprised how many teams just run out of gas and i think mm-hmm. with all these teams up at the top um you can see it in the dugout that they're having fun while they're doing all this um they're supporting one another uh they they don't really blink in the face of adversity so it's going to be a collision of like a bunch of freight trains going at each other when we get into the super regionals in Omaha, because you'll see these supremely talented teams go up against one another. And while there is, like you said, a lot to be said about on paper talent, um, all the sin, there's inevitably going to be a Cinderella team this year, whether it's uh, a three or a four seed, making it out of a regional, um, a two seed going to Omaha, or maybe even a three or four seed going to Omaha um, they're going to be a good team because they're not going to get there without being a good team, but, um, they're going to love each other and love playing for each other too. Yeah. And I, I saw a couple videos of the Duke team when they were in that like absolute heater through a stretch there and the amount of fun that they were having and being on the culture side of understanding how much that means to get up for a midweek and have guys that are just enjoying being there every day. It was like, okay, this team has it. Right. When you talk about the it thing and baseball teams, baseball rosters are huge. It takes one guy pulling on the wrong side of that rope to derail a whole operation. Right. And especially because once things go wrong in the face of adversity, guess what? Everybody starts to gravitate towards those negative thoughts and those intrusive thoughts get in and it tears apart your culture. But when you have guys that, you know, when the 35th man understands that he might not pick up a glove, he might not pick up a bat today outside of infield, outfield and BP, but he still has a role to play. Those are the teams that have, you know, what it takes where they can combine the talent. You know, that's very important, the on-paper talent and get into a stretch run where they play their best baseball and obviously parlay that into some postseason success. But a team that's obviously rolling right now, and you've mentioned them a couple times, is Clemson, right? And when you look at what Coach Backage built in Michigan, and it's hard to win in Michigan, it's a cold weather state. I couldn't imagine playing Big Ten baseball. I hate the cold when it's like 60 and cloudy, let alone what they play in. And obviously when he was hired at Clemson, everybody thought it was going to be a success, right? He's He had time there in the past. He understands what Clemson's all about. He's a guy who'd build a program at Michigan, which doesn't have the resources that a Clemson had. But are you surprised that it came this quick with just how how fast it's come in the second half as well? Yeah. So I think, I mean, as you said, when Coach Backich was hired by Clemson this summer, I was really, really excited because he's an exceptional coach. And you mentioned what he did at Michigan, national runner up, got him to a number one ranking, won a big 10 title, went to regionals a few times. Um, There's no doubt that in a baseball hotbed, like the Carolinas and coaching at a, at a big time program like Clemson, that was going to bring a lot of success. Admittedly though, I didn't think it was going to be like top eight national seed in year one type of success. Um, which has been unbelievably impressive. I think it's going to be hard to not give him national coach of the year at this point. Um, And he is just an excellent recruiter. He's an excellent coach. And you talk about the buy-in of the guys, it's clear that, that they really buy what he's selling and the culture that he builds and his philosophy um, because they've, they've really picked it up late. Again, they could have rolled over mid season when they were, they were really on the outside looking in, in terms of the tournament. Um, 
they, I, I think they were sitting at under 500, close to 30 games in, um, or, or something like that. But they've they've turned it on and they just flipped a switch and have all been have they've been clicking. And I think that says a lot to to who he is as a coach because I think it's it's a little easy for um, or I'd say difficult to really relate and build a strong relationship with for the most part, a pretty new clubhouse um, other than the true freshmen, all these guys for the most part have played for, um, for coach Lee at Clemson. So for them to have been all in from the jump and, um, and to do this great of a job, I think it's, it's just more of an endorsement of who coach Backich is as a human being his baseball mind um, and, and what he's able to do at a big time program like this. So I think that this is, well, it's a great year for Clemson and their ceiling right now is a national championship. Um, I think it's just the beginning for him. And he's, he's going to, as I mentioned, he's a great recruiter. So once he starts getting his guys in there and gets his staff out on the trail and gets out on the trail himself, they're only going to bring in um, more and more talent each year. So I think that this is just the start of a really long, sustained period of success for uh, for Clemson. Yeah, and, and when you think about the programs that really do it the best, I guess is probably the best way to say it, it's when you can combine the ability to recruit at a level that Coach Backage has shown to recruit combined with the developmental aspect that he really flexed his muscle on at Michigan. I mean, you look at that team that made it all the way to the to College World Series final and ended up losing. Like In terms of talent, recruiting talent, they really showed their muscle about when you get on campus, you're going to get better. And then you come to the South, recruiting hotbed of the Carolinas, you're a stone's throw from Georgia, which is the best baseball metro in the country i don't think any questions asked and you can start recruiting that and then show what you've done developmentally with guys up where it snows nine months a year it feels like that's when you're really gonna see a program that's going to look a lot more like the clemson of when we were kids right don't you think yeah no no doubt about it and and like you said um, given the recruiting prowess of, of coach Backage and his, and his staff, it's, it, it's going to bode really well for long-term success. And you're going to be able to sell guys on both the developmental aspect of who you're going to look like as a player in three or four years when you're leaving the program. And also being like, Hey, you're going to get better as a player and we're going to win a lot of games along the way and be dogpiling in Omaha. And that's going to be a really tough message and, and philosophy for recruits to turn down. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So obviously you mentioned the fact of uh, it could be a two seed going to Omaha, a three seed, four seed, whatever it could be. And, you know, I think this year, right, I think there is a little bit more of parity than we've seen. Um, I think more of just because nationally everybody talks about the LSUs of the world and they have their flaws, they have their shortcomings. And obviously every team outside of Wake, in my opinion, you can at least point to one glaring hole that could creep up. And if you told me they lost in a, really a regional, not even a super regional, a regional, and you told me X was the reason why, I could see it. So what are some of those smaller programs that obviously get some love nationally, but that could get hot, could knock down one of these Goliaths that we talk about and and be able to maybe make their way all the way to Omaha? Sure. Um, I, I think starting up in the Northeast in my neck of the woods um, is Northeastern and they're 41 and 12 right now. 
they are kind of the king. They, they didn't actually win the CAA regular season title. That actually went to UNCW. But they've shown all year that they can play with the best. They, they can play with the best of the best. They swept Indiana State. They've got midweek wins over Duke and BC. Um, and the CAA is a much better conference than I think it gets credit for. Um, there's a There are a lot of quality teams in there with Northeastern, UNCW, Charleston, William and Mary, um, and others. But you talk about the well-roundedness of clubs and kind of what you need and these ingredients to make a long run. And Northeastern's got it. Uh, I think it starts with Mike Sirota. He's a legit five to a player in center field. Um, he's a true sophomore hitting 364 with 17 jacks, 19 bags. Um, he's probably going to play team USA this summer. If I had to guess, he is a legit top 15, top 20 overall type draft pick. And then as a team, they're hitting really well. Uh, they're hitting 300 on the nose, and they've got a good supporting cast of Tyler McGregor, who's hitting 350 with 18 jacks, Alex Lane, 318 with 15 home runs. And then a guy to watch and who's going to be a problem for a while is Cam Maldonado. He's a true freshman, looks the part at 6'3". He's got room to fill out, and he's he stepped into an everyday role right away and really excelled. He's hitting 354 with – 11 doubles and 12 home runs and stolen 30 bases. So you talk about the five tool upside of Sirota. Um, and while Maldonado might not be there in terms of, I guess, polish in some aspects of his game, um, he's well on his way to, um, to being another first round draft selection at Northeastern and then shifting gears to the mound. They've got a great rotation. Um, another freshman, Avon Cabral, Leads the way for him, 2-3 ERA with 64 Ks to just nine walks and 72 innings. He's a guy that, in, in looking at him pitch, he moves really well on the mound. He's got a quick arm. He's got room to fill out. He's sitting in the low 90s right now, but in his draft year or even just next year um, or soon thereafter, he's going to be someone that's, I think, mid-90s or so and and getting really good shape on his high spin slider. So, He's a prospect, and then the rest of their rotation's been great. So um, they they can play with anybody in the country, and I know that Coach Glavin up there, he comes from a baseball family. He's the brother of Tom Glavin, um, and and um, he's going to have them ready to play against anybody, whether it's in a regional close to home against Boston College or going down to UConn, or they got to go somewhere else if BC or UConn don't end up hosting. Um, they're going to be up and playing with no fear. So they're, they're one team that really sticks out to me um, as far as mid-majors go. Um, sticking with a Power 5 team, and they're my Omaha sleeper going into the year. I'm glad that they're going to make a regional at the very least because it would have been bad if my Omaha sleeper <laughs> didn't even get into the tournament. Uh, but Washington out, um, out west, they've been playing – really good baseballs of late. They kind of had a little bit of a stinker this past weekend. They lost to Cal, but again, they're safely in the tournament. Um, and you kind of talk about, again, the, the completeness of a club and they've got it. So, and, and it's a seasoned group. They're really, they're really well coached with new coach, Jason Kelly up at the, up at the helm and it's a veteran clad group and, and they can throw really well. And if you get them on the right day, they're going to, they look as good as anybody. So those are two that stick out to me right away. Um, there are going to be others as well. I know Indiana state, namely 
Southern Miss, both with what they've got on the field and then also playing for Coach Barry, who yep. is in his last year as head coach. They're always one to watch. They're never going to be an easy out. Um, so there are, there are a lot of teams that are going to give these bigger schools fits once we get into June. And it's, um, it's going to be exciting to watch it unfold because while there's, I think, a clear number one right now with Wake and, and maybe number two with Florida, you can kind of shuffle – I'd say maybe three through about, depending on where you look at for your rankings, maybe three through 20, you can kind of shuffle them around any which way and and make a case that one's going to beat the other. So um, it makes, it's going to make for a really fun June. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll give you credit here. I saw you call out somebody who told you that Washington wasn't going to make a regional. I saw you quote tweet it, pull back the, pull back the receipts from February. So you had to do that. I love that. And and also nothing but love for a D3 guy making the leap in Kiefer Lord. Um, you know, as a fellow D3 guy, uh, love to see that happen and, and making the most of his opportunities, but I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up my hometown team here, the fight. Oh, my love. Okay, I, I was going to say, if you got Campbell <laughs> listeners, they're going to be at my neck because I, I don't think I've encountered a more passionate fan base on Twitter than yeah, them and wrong. Southern Miss. So absolutely the Camels can can do it too. Yeah, and, and I do want to, you know, if there's anything that I have learned over the last couple months since moving to the area, it's just being close, not in the program, obviously, but close enough to the program to kind of see – what they've done and what they do. That's so impressive. Obviously they'll be making the jump to the CAA next year. And then you can finally start talking about hosting because uh, the RPI hit that the big South gives them of having to play that conference run. Um, they challenge themselves in non-conference. They've had a great run at it. Um, but just seeing what coach Hare has built and, you know, I'd love to just get your perspective on, you know, not only just the image of Campbell baseball across the country, but like what they've done player development wise is kind of absurd. I mean, they have, I say five, six, seven guys that throw 95 plus and it's just like, oh, here's a midweek kid who throws a hundred. And it's like, where does that come from at a big South school? We're not talking about a power five program. Yeah, and and I think that a lot of the credit goes to Coach Hare. I mean, he's he's built Campbell into what I in the college baseball world at least they're a national name, they're a national brand at this point, and it's and it's all, all they do is win. Um, they've averaged over thirty a year since he took over. Um, even after they lost a lot with Thomas Harrington and Zach Neto, who's already the starting shortstop for the Angels, um, after they left last year. Um, they come back and they they go forty one and thirteen with a twenty two and five record in the conference. So, um, again, it's just they when you talk about a team or a, or a roster that's kind of made up of veterans and you get that maturity and leadership that you don't necessarily have elsewhere. Campbell fits that to a T. If you kind of click around their roster and and see who their big contributors are this year. They've all been their redshirt juniors, juniors, seniors. They're guys with experience and the, I think, um, really just the experience necessary to to rub off on these younger guys. And it creates a, a really nice environment for development, both as a player and then also from the, the mental aspect and, and the makeup standpoint. It's kind of 
they've done a great job of leading by example, I think, from from what I've seen. And I'm again, I'm not even really close to that clubhouse, so I can't speak to it, but at least that's what it looks like from afar. Um, they've they they get these group of leaders and they will kind of take these younger guys under their wing. So when it's time for them to to be thrown onto the big stage and and under these bright lights, they're more than ready for it. Um, and it's evident in how they play. Like they they play with swag, they don't really play with fear. Um, they, they go right into these quality midweek games against really good teams and, and hold their own. They've got a midweek win over, over coastal. Um, they played Duke really well. They just beat UNC recently. Um, and they beat ECU last week and, and, and all of that. So they, the job that coach Hare has done has, has been nothing short of incredible. And in terms of recruiting and selling guys on it, um, you know, you can look at Zach Neto and and say, hey, he's a guy who came through our program, developed under us, and he was in the big leagues uh, less than two years after after being drafted. And yeah. there are a lot of pieces that go into that with why he was called up and, and the system he's in. But the talent that's there um, is big league level talent that he's bringing in. So, I mean, you look at, again, Thomas Harrington on the mound last year as well. Um, and then this year with Cade Keeler and inevitably there's going to be another guy that pops up. I'd say keep an eye on, um, I think it's Jackson Roberts. Keep an eye on him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to be a good one. True freshman. Um, but yeah, they, they're the class of the big South, big South. They've, they've run through that conference. And like you mentioned, going to the CAA, that's just going to make the CAA all the more loaded. And, oh, yeah. and hopefully we get a regional at some point, whether that's in boys Creek or Fayetteville, wherever, um, wherever the the seating capacity allows but they um they're going to be the they're going to be a thorn in a lot of team sides and and one of the best mid-major teams if not the best mid-major team um for i think as long as he's there yeah i i completely agree and one of the most impressive things obviously is you hear about just like the way they carry themselves right and that's kind of a testament to coach hair. Um, but the way they carry themselves around campus, it's respectful. Um, I bumped into a, one of their, one of their starters, um, their starting catcher on the driving range the other day, you know, just started chatting them up, talking baseball and it's yes, sir. No, sir. Handshake, eye contact, the little things, right. And the little things, especially at a small school, that's as important as Campbell to the community. Those are sometimes the things that matter a little bit more. Um, and, and it's huge because there's, there's nothing that the town of Bowie's Creek's love Bowie's Creek loves more than Campbell university and seeing the, seeing them host a regional would be awesome. And I would love to see it at least in the, the next couple of years. They had, they'd have to expand Jim Perry stadium a little bit um, to make that happen. But obviously they put in for Fayetteville this year to uh, it just in case. So um, just a couple more questions about the college game before we do get into a little bit of draft talk is our good friend, friend of the pod, one of our co-hosts, Colin Palouse, when he's able to make it, he is a Wake grad. Um, so we have nothing but love for Wake. And and the pitching factory, I think what gets a lot of times tied into it um, is the analytics, the data, and all the stuff that comes with the pitching lab that they've had for years. But that didn't kind of come to fruition right away. 
But you see this rotation that they have right now, and it's not only just the rotation itself of the three guys they throw out there. Um, it's the bullpen, too. Like They throw guys out of the bullpen that just throw absolute fuzz, throw invisibles, whatever it is coming out of the bullpen, and those guys know exactly how to use their stuff, how to move their body. What's been the most impressive thing um, in your perspective about what Wake's been able to do on the developmental side? It's second and none across the country, and I think that – Coach Walter will dole out a lot of credit in in terms of, you know, where all of that comes from. And again, I think that goes to Coach Muscara and um, and Coach McFerrin. And then also you've got a lot of neat people on the the biomechanical side. Um, you know, they've they've got doctors in there, and you know. Mark Seaver and and Jeff Strom and and guys like that. So I think it's a a, a team, just how it's a team effort with the Deeks on the field where they've got a, a great lineup and elite pitching staff. It's a team effort off it with building this pitching lab, getting development tailored towards each pitcher's needs and having it be an environment that these arms can just soar in. And um, the, the pitching lab is, Again, it's a world-class facility. It's one of a kind. And we've seen even just in in 2023, the steps forward that so many of these arms have taken and, and year to year what progress a lot of these guys have made. And that's why it's, I think it's so easy and rightfully so to get excited about some of these Wake Forest arms that might not be in the rotation right now or this year, but they're underclassmen and you look towards next year or maybe even the year after and, and projecting on that and, and, and seeing who maybe the next, I guess, stud top two or top three round pick is going to be. And I think in looking at that, I think Michael Massey is a pretty easy answer. He's been out of the bullpen for him this year, mostly uh, really other than one spot start. I think he's been out of the bullpen in a late inning role, 60 Ks to 12 walks and 32 innings. Fastball has got really great shape up to 96, 97 with great carry. He's got a plus breaking ball that gets tons of swing and miss. That's a guy I know that I don't know if they're going to work on, on him, you know, becoming a starter, but if I, I think he's a prime candidate to make the jump into the rotation and then further down the pike, freshman lefty Joe Ariola is going to be a really good one, smaller kid, but can really spin a breaking ball. Ball moves, ball comes out of his hand really well. It's a clean delivery with a, with a good arm stroke. So I think those are two, if you're looking for names to circle um, in terms of projecting the next great arm to come out of wake forest. I think, I think those, those two are your best bets, but you can't forget you got harder returning next year. So um, with that coaching staff and that developmental staff in place um, again, they're going to, they're, they're in a fantastic spot and will be for a while. Definitely, definitely, and and you mentioned the the pitching lab, and and obviously that's something that that we're probably not as privy to as people that have been inside that program. But one of the things that interests me the most is is you look at Rhett Louder, and one of the things that is a I guess you could say a question mark about him is that open toed, open foot finish that he has when in his pitching mechanics, and that that kind of concerns some people. And, and I'd love to know your take on 
that because I have my opinions. I think that's a product of the pitching lab. That's not just something he rolls out of bed and does. I think it's something where his hip anatomy allows him to free his lower half up and get into that position, which allows him to fire on all cylinders, whereas some guys can land closed and be still in a fireable position. So that's one thing that I'd be interested in because I've heard that a lot of the draft talk is that people, there are some concerns over that open toed finish, but I, I have a hard time believing that a, you know, a pitching development factory like Wake Forest has become and somebody who has the resources of force plates and all these cameras and everything like that wouldn't fully understand that like, Hey, there's a reason Rhett Louder does this. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. While it's pretty unique that he does land with that open toe sometimes, um, given the the development and, and watchful eye that all of these wake arms are under, um, they wouldn't be delivering the pitch how they do or or you know having the motions that they do if it wasn't in their best interest. Um, and so I think that while it's a little unique and a little interesting, uh, you just look at the numbers with Red. It's a one-five ERA, back-to-back ACC pitchers of the, pitcher of the year, um, two-plus pitches with a slider and changeup, fastball up to ninety-five, ninety-six. Uh, it's it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And like you said, some of that could come with the flexibility he has in his lower half. Um, he's still able to get um, good momentum in his back half and drive down the mound. So. Um, I, I, I think it's an interesting point, but if it was something to correct, there's no doubt in my mind that they would have gotten after that in the pitching lab, cleaned it up a little bit and optimized who Rhett Louder can be as a pitcher. Because I think that whenever you see these guys toe the rubber and, and go out and throw in that moment, they're the best versions of themselves as a pitcher. Like there is the preparation that they do over there is second and none with, obviously the pitching lab and, and kind of understanding the body and how it moves and all of that. So there is, they're as polished as they come. And, and again, while it's a little bit wonky, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's going to scare too many teams off and just looking at how Rhett Louder pitches the, the track record he's got and, and all of that. No, that's, that's awesome. And, and obviously you mentioned the pitching development that they've had and a guy that Dan and I were lucky enough to see live at, at the Durham Bulls athletic park, a pitch against Duke was Sean Sullivan. And one of the things that is always unique, right, is it's my favorite thing of, you know, being in the dugout playing and things like that. And you just see consistent chases at the chin, right? And everybody's going, what are they swinging at? Why would they chase that? What are they doing? What are they looking at? Like, how do you, how does that happen? And being able to make adjustments off of that and understand, I mean, I've heard head coaches go ballistic for guys with, you know, high vert. And next thing you know, you're swinging at balls at your eyes and, and your coach is like, what are you swinging at? What are you looking at? And not understanding why you might be swinging at that. And Sean Sullivan is a guy that I don't know the percentages. I don't have the, the information that you might hold predominantly fastballs and predominantly getting swings and misses in uncomfortable spots on the strike zone. Like when we're talking about like humming a ball up at a really good hitter's chin and getting a chase with less than two strikes, that's when you know a guy has a truly elite heater that can get on guys. And one of the things that I would like to know about Sullivan is obviously kind of what your thoughts are on as him. 
But is he a guy who we think right now projected might be a little lower, but a team that's analytically forward could take a shot on him because of that fastball shape and that vertical approach angle that he definitely possesses. And and he might go a little higher in the draft than we might think of as uh, Sean Sullivan as he sits today. So in looking at the draft and, and I guess maybe poking holes a little bit in the class, one area in which it lacks, I think is left-handed pitching um, and left-handed pitchers with starter upside to take it a little further. And I think that Sullivan is one of very few, at least college arms being talked about in this second to fourth round range or, or somewhere in there where, you know, you can kind of project on them as a starter. And I think that the first round, it might be a little bit of a stretch for Sullivan, but let's say Wake goes to Omaha, they win a national championship and Sullivan makes a few quality starts along the way. We've seen guys in the past make their stock in the postseason, namely Kate Horton last year with his start in Omaha, got popped eighth overall. Um, there's no reason why that Sullivan can't pitch his way into day one contention. And as you mentioned, it's a super unique profile with that low release height. The easy comparison to make, I think, is Cooper Jerpy, but mm-hmm. Sullivan's actually got a couple more ticks of velocity. Um, fastball's got a crazy miss rate of 37%, which is <laughs> just stupid um, for those listening. That's That's legit. And then he's also throws it like 75% of the time, which is a lot, but has shown good feel for a changeup that also gets a ton of swing and miss. And then a sweeping kind of longer slider that, that also gets a lot of swing and miss. So it's a starter pitch mix. Um, There's, you can kind of hope and and dream on maybe a couple more ticks of velocity, even if he's sitting 91, 93 from, from that release height and the type of delivery that he has, where it's just kind of, I guess controlled chaos in a sense where he's got limbs flying at you, but he's able to repeat it. Well, um, 91, 93 from that release height is just, it's going to play way, way up. And um, I was talking to a couple of players actually on NC state and they had said that the toughest arm that they faced that weekend out of louder, Hartle, Sullivan, anyone on the wake staff was, was Sullivan um, because of mm-hmm. that release height and how the fastball, he hides it really well. It jumps out of his hand. And then he's got two two quality secondary offerings. So I think talking to the players, that's that's really valuable too and and hearing their perspective. And there's no doubt he's supremely talented. Yeah. And kind of a guy that I think of, I'm I'm probably gonna pull a name out of left field here, is he's basically like Matt Cronin with starter length, right? When Matt Cronin was in college, like that heater was impossible to get on top of but Sean Sullivan's going out there throwing it 75% of the time and going five six seven innings and it's it's insane to think about and 37% whiff you said right yeah 37 truly elites like 25 right like that's like really good for a fastball itself right And, and you think about that being you know the pitch that it is 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 pretty crazy to think about and you made the comparison to the the three starters and I'll ask you this because this is something Dan and I actually had conversed about over the last couple of days. When you look at Rhett Lauder's profile and then you look at Sean Sullivan's profile and you think about the draft on the whole, what's the return on investment that organizations kind of have to evaluate because Rhett Lauder has that higher floor per se, but Sean Sullivan, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, probably has a higher ceiling, I guess would be probably the best way to say it because there's that higher variance. And if you're spending a, 
round one pick on a high floor guy where we've seen round three to seven really recently where guys like the Tanner Bybees of the world, uh, the Bryce Millers of the world, where guys can kind of come out of nowhere and really, and Spencer Strider can come out of nowhere quick in that range. Is that something that could ding a Rhett Louder for some, some organizations that might only see him as a mid-rotation arm, but we can find sinker slider guys maybe later in the draft that if we trust our development can probably put them in a position to be successful. And then you have Sullivan on the other side who were like high octane stuff. If he, if he figures it out, he could be, you know, top of a rotation arm. That's a great question. And I think it, I don't know if it's necessarily going to ding louder. I think it might just put a cap on where he's selected, maybe just slightly outside the top 10. I don't know if someone's going to, go for it inside the top 10 and just looking at who's selecting, you never know. Um, But as you mentioned with Rhett, I think that the ceiling, it might not be like a one or a two starter that you get with Skeens or or Hurston Waldrop, who again, ceiling is crazy high, but floor is just as low. With Louder, I think you get the highest floor in the draft. You get the safest bet of any of these college arms to reach the big leagues, probably outside of Paul Skeens, I would say. Um, you get the track record of performance. The present stuff is really good. He knows how to pitch. He's got feel for his secondary pitches. It's probably a, a strong three starter at the big league level type of upside. But again, that's a guy who's who's a quality piece of any major league club and and someone that's going to be tough to pass up on for a while in the draft. So it 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 might prevent Louder from going inside the top. I don't know mm-hmm. ten picks, but yeah. Um, someone with that profile is going to get snatched really quick because in today's Mm -hmm. game, that's so stuff oriented and kind of the pitching comes later and really just knowing how to pitch is such a rare trait. Um, He's, he's, he's going to be really difficult to, to say no to. And then with Sullivan, again, we talk about Cooper Jerpy and you can take it a little bit further and even say there's like Chris sale upside. I don't know. He's not as long as sale. He's not as Mm -hmm. I think loose as sale, but Again, low release height lefties are a unique demographic. So it's riskier with Sullivan. Um, There's more of the unknowns, but his ceiling, I think, is right on par with Louder. And um, and he's also pretty, he's, you know, he's still only going to be 21 at the draft. So, yeah, um, but as as is Louder, but um, that's a that's a really good point. And I think that um you mentioned rounds three through seven i think that that's where a lot of teams have sullivan right now maybe in that Mm -hmm. or three to five range and -hmm. i think that they're hoping he gets out of day one because if you can make two or three picks and still have sullivan around for when you select i think that's that's really great value for where you get him and in the type of as you mentioned the ceiling that you're going to get no that's that's great and and one of the other guys obviously that's been an enigma here is coming into the year. I mean, the, the comps for Chase Dolander was probably out of this world. I mean, what he was in 2022 was soda can command, right? He could throw it into a red solo cup slider off of it, just wicked stuff, fastball playing at an elite rate. And just, it was so easy for him. And obviously it was probably going to be too much to expect for him to repeat that. 
but what are some of the things that have stood out to you, whether it be, is it, is the arm slot different? Are there mechanical adjustments that he's made that kind of, he's just not in sync? Is it just flat out the ball and he's a high vert guy. And and we all know that high vertically moving fastballs, they miss in the air. And when a ball has a little bit of extra carry on it, it's going to go out more times than not. And it, that park that he plays in is not small either. Is that the biggest factor? So what are some of the things that have kind of led to Dolander's struggles? Yeah, he's been a really interesting case because um, he came into this season, as you mentioned, with I think the highest expectations of any arm in the country. We obviously heard a lot about Skeens and the progress he was making under coach Wes Johnson um, at LSU, but uh Dolander was getting comps to Jason DeGrom or Jacob DeGrom uh, and in front of the line uh, MLB starters. And they were really lofty expectations and some, I think that were impossible to live up to. And I think in watching DeGrom pitch, it's just been a little more inconsistent this year. Uh, The fastball, some, some nights it's looked really good with its shape and he's able to, to get a ton of ride on it through the zone, but it's naturally got some arm side run to it, which at times he hasn't been able to command super well. And it'll just kind of run over the plate and into guys barrels. And as you mentioned, Tennessee is a hitter friendly park. So mistakes, there are going to get punished, especially by sec hitters. Um, and then I was expecting, I think a little bit more from the slider. Uh, it's shown flashes. It's shown really good depth and, and sharp break, but at least this Saturday, and he was excellent this Saturday against yeah. South Carolina, 13 Ks, which is a season high fastball was 95, 98, ton of swing and miss. You, you saw that lively life. You saw that tons of life on it with the arm side run. He commanded well and the ride through the zone, but the slider shape wasn't really there. It was more like a cutter didn't have a ton of depth to it. And he kind of just ditched throwing it all together and was able to get by with his fastball. So I think it's just been a year of inconsistency with Dolander. I don't notice a ton of difference in his delivery and, and arm slot and whatnot. I think it's just, I, I'm I'm not really sure what the exact issue is. It's not even a pitch usage thing either. But um, again, he's, he's, I think, an unfair victim of sky high expectations because when you look at what he's done this year, it's actually been really, it's been quite good. Um, the ERA is a little higher at 4.28, but the 107 strikeouts just through the regular season um, almost matches 2022 season total entirely with of, of 108. So he might not have that minuscule ERA he did last year. Um, he might be getting hit around a little bit more. Um, but I, again, I think that when looking at the combination of upside and also low risk. I think Dollander really fits that because I think he does have that one or two starter upside um, with, with what he has to offer. Um, And then also I think that there's, there's pretty good clay there to work with. So um, for sure, I'd say more inconsistent than, than anyone had really hoped or I, I wouldn't say hoped, but anyone that had thought, uh, but again, he's got a chance to to build off that really strong start on Saturday and um, guide the Vols to uh, to Omaha. Yeah, and, and he's so athletic, right? And like on the mound, his movements are so fluid. Like the arm action looks so easy. He's one of those guys where it's like in we're in an era where 
pitcher injuries are far in a way like almost seem more of a guarantee than than just it almost seems like the inevitable more than trying to protect from it but if there's anybody who has like the fluid mechanics and athleticism that it seems like could potentially avoid that it seems like Dolander could be the type and and just because he looks so athletic and and one of the things that I do want to ask you and and we'll we'll close out here with a couple more questions and then and then get you on your way but um evaluating power in the college game today right it's something that I I kind of sat back a cu- a couple weeks back and and crunched the numbers to see exactly how much it's changed and how much we could see how much it changed and and really it came out to be like what Dylan Cruz has done this year in terms of a triple slash line is comparable to what Brent Rooker did in 2017. And and we're talking about 200 point difference in OPS about roughly 30 to 40 point difference in slugging. And I'm just rattling the numbers off the top of my head. So how has that gone for you to be able to evaluate Josh Rivera, who has this breakout year with the bat and you start to put stock into it, but also, factoring in the the environment that they're playing in it's really difficult i think both with you hear all this talk of the balls maybe flying a little more than they used to and then also all the talk of potentially hot bats and and how they're performing this year i think it's really difficult to i think there's more variability in in the power grade you might stick on a player which is where i think evaluating them in a wood bat setting um is is extremely valuable whether that be the cape league or team usa or any of the other great summer leagues across the country that's where you're going to see um how a guy can really hit and the impact he can really generate because in this year's college game it's so offensive heavy everyone's hitting you know 300 and above it feels like 20 home runs used to be a big deal and now it's almost everyone that's leading their team in home runs has, has 20 or so 17 to 20 or so home runs. And um, it's um, it's been really tough to measure, I think at times. Uh, but like you said, like Josh Rivera is an interesting case because there's been tons of progress that he's made with um, cutting down on his swing and miss. He could always pick it at shortstop, um, but he's always had that violent operation at the plate that, um, he hadn't really been able to put it together until this year, but uh, it, it's, it's just kind of all clicking for him. So um, he's an interesting one. And then just going back to, to looking at power across the country, I think I'd put, I would put most of my stock and in, in nearly all of it into, into what they do against high level pitching in a wood bat setting, because I know with, Matt Shaw and Brock Wilkin, I was fortunate enough to see them on the Cape and how they did there and how the ball flew off their bat with, with using wood and it's, it's legit juice. It's not just a byproduct of using metal. So like, I'm not going to really grade Matt Shaw's power a whole lot based on what he's doing at Maryland. I'm going to kind of more focus and zone in on what he did on the Cape. Same with Brock Wilkin and a lot of these guys. So um, it's, it's becoming more difficult for sure, because I think that some of these 20 to 25 home run guys, while they do have a lot of strength and there's some power in there, they wouldn't be able to, to hit 20 home runs if they didn't have power. Um, yeah. but, uh, but there's no doubt that it's going to decrease by a, a pretty decent margin when they, when they go against wood. Yeah. And, and across the league, 
average slugging percentage is 446, which if you put in a perspective in like a big league setting of what 446 slugging is, like that's really good. Um, so it, it's kind of crazy to think about that, like the average across college baseball could be that high, but that's like the environment they're playing in. And Logan Davidson's one of the the big examples of a guy that he had struggled with wood consistently, but he had a really good junior year and ended up getting first round money from the Oakland A's and has not panned out in, in professional baseball. So it's, it's definitely something to, to value. And, and I was never like the, the wood bat in college baseball crowd. I was never a fan of that um, because I always thought that, you know, the professional game is such a pure, like the talent's better, all the stuff like that. Like people forget that outside of the SEC and ACC, there's the MAC, there's the MEAC, there's the, the like all these small conferences that like, it's not beneficial to bring wood in for them to use and, and just blow their hands out in February and in, in 35 degree weather. But the more I start to see it, the more I could understand where like maybe a wood bat setting, whether it be for evaluators or something like that through the college game would be interesting to see. And, and that's just kind of me going off on a tangent. But one of the last things I want to ask you here, who are some of your favorite guys for the, for the draft that you just love watching? They're pulling up their tape and, and watching them hit or watching them on the mound. Yeah. So I think it's, uh, it's pretty difficult not to say Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens to, to lead off with a hitter and pitcher respectively with Cruz, you know, he's one of the most pro ready hitters in the country, big time bat speed, strong forearms, um, great field to hit with advanced feel for the barrel. He's got in-game juice skeins again, up to one Oh two with, uh, three plus pitches. Um, so those two guys I think are going to be, really impactful big league players for for quite some time and then shifting over a little bit Colton Led Colton Ledbetter really excites me on the college side as well same with Hurston Waldrip um just in terms of as we've discussed from a ceiling standpoint I I know that with him there's there is a lot of reliever risk there um but the sheer stuff he has is undeniable and if um, he's able to stay healthy and, and refine his command a little bit. He, he's got a chance to be maybe the best arm out of anyone in this draft. So yeah. Skeens, Waldrip, Dolander, Walker Jenkins out of high school, again, really excites me. Um, Tommy Troy from Stanford, again, power, power contact blend with big time whip in his hands, serious bat speed. Um, and then one guy to keep an eye on Colton Ledbetter out of Mississippi state. He's, he's, um, he's got a chance to go really high and he's performed well, a great athlete in center field, um, can swing the bat is hit for power, gets the ball up in the air and hits it really hard. Um, exit velos upwards of one fifteen. So, um, yeah, he, he crushes the baseball. I could go on and on about guys. I like, I'm trying to think of one more who, uh, who might be a little bit, I guess, a, a sleeper, so to speak, uh, in the top 10 rounds. Dylan had out of high school from Homewood Flossmoor High School in Illinois. He's got he's got as much upside as anyone, I think, in the high school class with five tools. So mm-hmm. um, those are those are a handful of guys that I'm personally excited about. Who who are you excited to see out on the Cape this summer then? Um, we'll, we'll, we'll even give you an opportunity maybe to pull some names there too. Uh, gosh, good question. So – Team USA always throws a wrench in it um, yeah. a, a little bit because they'll uh, they obviously have their collegiate national team and, and they'll invite 
some of the top players in college baseball. But in looking at who might potentially be out here, I'm excited to see uh, Vance Honeycutt from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack Caglione is on a roster. I don't know if he's going to show up, but I mean, if he shows, that's it's hard not to get excited about him. Same with Charlie Condon. And then uh, from Oregon State, Travis Bazana. Um, he's one of my personal favorites in the 2024 class. And he's actually, it's funny. So I know with him, he's not going to play on the uh, Team USA national team because he's Australian. Mm. Um, so he'll, barring injury, more than likely be on the Cape. And cool. uh, he might not get enough love right now because he's, he's at Oregon State and it's hard to follow their games. Uh, but he's a guy who crushes the baseball hits for both power and average can really run great defender at second base. And he's going to go, uh, I'd say in the first 10 to 20 picks in the 2024 draft. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And then this is the last one now, now, cause now the Cape just opened up my brain. Who's the guy that you saw on the Cape that like, you were like, this guy's going to be a stud and maybe not everybody else was on him. And then we'll give you, we'll let you give yourself some flowers. He turned out to be a stud. So like, who's a guy that you've seen recently who was like, maybe you thought was a first round talent who went in the fifth. And now everybody's like, Oh, that guy's a stud. Uh, Oh, that's a great question because a lot of the guys just kind of like lived up to their expectations. I'm trying to think of someone who, who really made their stock on the Cape. Uh, you know what? I'll go actually, I'll go back to 2019 a little bit. Um, and Casey Schmidt from San Diego state. And he's now the big league shortstop, big league third baseman. He's, he's played both, but big league third baseman with the, the San Francisco giants. Um, and on the Cape, he was a two way guy. He was, he was actually really good off the mound too. He was a great closer, but, um, over on the dirt, his, his defensive instincts were, we're second and nine. He was comfortable moving in either direction. He was really light on his feet. Good athlete. He was comfortable throwing with arm strength from really any angle possible. And he kind of had that classic like California cool type mentality um, where nothing would really phase him. He'd kind of stay pretty level headed, whether he was scorching hot at the plate or struggling a little bit. And it's funny throughout the minor leagues. And as he's gotten up to the big leagues, his operation hasn't changed all that much. It's still, same quick hand speed, really nice torque in his lower half, finishes his swing really well. Um, and he's a guy that I know when I was watching him and 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 everyone was watching him on the Cape, they were pretty excited about him. And he just kind of exploded onto the scene at San Diego State, was a day one pick, and he's, he's flourished in the minor leagues and now at the major league level. So Schmidt's definitely won. Um, Tommy Troy last year was another, he was more of a household name, but, Mm -hmm. um, kind of coming into the season, I was like, okay, this guy's got MVP of the league type upside. Um, and, and he went out and won top pro prospect. So it was fun to see that, uh, come to fruition. And, and, and there are so many other guys who, who make their stock on the Cape. We could be here for like five hours (laughs) talking about it, but those are two that stick out at least recently. No doubt. No doubt. Well, that that's awesome. And all of the content you provided today was just phenomenal. So why don't you plug your social media? Cause I know you produce a ton of great content out there. Plug the podcast to um, just anything you want to plug for our listeners and, and let them know where they can find you. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate it. Uh, it's at Peter G Flaherty on Twitter. It's just 
first and last name with my middle initial and then the podcast, both uh, the college baseball podcast with Teddy Cahill and then Carlos Colazo and I do a draft podcast each week. You can find that on the baseball America feed, wherever you get your podcast. So um, yeah, hit me up, follow me. If you want to even just chop it up about certain guys and, and discuss certain players, whether it be more on the college side or talking about the draft, my DMS are open. So shoot me a message and I'm happy to talk through anyone with, with anyone. Awesome. Well, we appreciate that. Uh, we appreciate you coming on here and thank you to all our listeners for tuning in as that will conclude our episode for today. Make sure you are subscribing to the podcast on all platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere you find your podcast. We post episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, always hitting your feed at 7 a.m. sharp. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at BacksideGB, Instagram at BacksideGroundBalls, and TikTok at BacksideGroundBall. And most importantly, Make sure you're sharing with five friends and that'll do for this episode and we'll see you guys on the next podcast. Great news. Major League Baseball is back. The college baseball season continues to electrify. and With the help of our friends over at SeatGeek, we can get you out to whatever game you want to see. All you need to do is head over to SeatGeek, find your game you want to go to, and enter promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL to get $20 off your first purchase. Maybe you want to go see some NBA or NHL playoffs. I don't know. Maybe you want to go to a concert with the weather warming up throughout the country. No matter what event you're looking to go to, our friends at SeatGeek can hook you up with the best deals. Great seats at an affordable price. You can't beat it. Make sure to enter promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL for $20 off. That's SeatGeek.com, promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL.